how you going? <laughs> Good to see you, church family. Love you guys. Everybody's looking so nice. And happy Father's Day to all the granddads, dads, and father figures in the house. It's an honor to be able to um, serve you this morning. So we're going to get just stuck into this, okay? Yeah? Sounds good. So if you've been trekking with us, we are continuing in our series on the life of Peter. Um, and if there was ever any evidence that God wrote the Bible, it is Peter. <laughs> it is that guy. Oh, let me turn it on. Hold on. Okay. It's Peter. Yep, there he is. And, and Bernie reckons that looks like him. <laughs> Sorry, Bernie, to throw you under the bus. But, it, you know, if you were really wanting um, to get people to buy into your movement, I think you would clean Peter up. Um, that you would tell a better story, tell an Instagrammed, filtered version of Peter and the disciples and every other Bible character for that matter. You know, I actually said something similar to that to our video guy, our videographer, Charles, um, after I saw myself in that Serious Coffee interview last week on this ginormous screen for the whole world to see. And I said, Charles, dude, where was that soft focus globe of, of a filter that would magically hide and mask all my flaws and make me look 20 years younger? What the heck? Where was that? Because I didn't see that. And I love Charles' response. He laughed and quick as anything he said, without missing a beat, I thought Siri's coffee was about being real. I was like, oh, oh, dude, straight to the heart. And all I could say was, you're right. It is about being real. I just didn't want to look so real. That's all. So in his word, God tells the story of his people. No filter, warts and all. The Bible is full of stories of epic victories, amazing stories of faith and the faithful. But the Bible also tells the stories, thankfully, of epic failures. Epic failures by the people of God who I am sure wish they could have a do-over, wish they could press the delete button and start again. I mean, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever blown it royally or do something that you never thought you would do or thought you were capable of doing? Have you ever lost your temper, yelled at and said hurtful things to people you love, apologize only to do it again the next day? Ever broke a promise, let someone down in a friendship or a relationship? I mean, I could go on and on because I have done all those things. And I think if we're honest, we've all been there. And when we blow it, we can be left wondering, what does God think of me now? What does God do and think of you and me when we blow it big time? The scriptures we are looking at today are ones that we would normally reserve for Easter. You know, the, the last days of Jesus's life, but we are following the life of Peter and part of his story leads us here. Now this morning we will journey together to a garden and we will go to this garden with Jesus and the disciples, and then with Peter, James, and John, and then deeper still, where Jesus goes alone. And we're going to see Jesus like we have never seen him before, um, up close and personal, unfiltered and raw. 
travail and lament in such a way that he actually sweats drops of blood. And then we will see Jesus come out of that garden resolute and walk straight towards his fate and towards a betraying kiss of death and the cross. This is a true sobering moment in the passion of the Christ and the disciples. Well, if I had to give this sermon a subtitle, it would be while you were sleeping because Peter, James, and John sleep through the whole thing. Let me pray for us. God, your presence is everything to us. We thank you that you're here right now. And so God, I, I feel like the only way to come to these scriptures is on my knees. And so God, I pray that this morning you would wake us up, open our hearts to what it is you want to say. Open our hearts, open our ears to hear you. And may we grasp just a glimpse of what it is that you've done for us. We love you and we thank you, Father. In Jesus' precious name, and all of God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Now let's remind ourselves where we are up to in Peter's story. And last week we were in the upper room with Jesus and the disciples as they celebrate the Passover. Now this meal was a big deal. It was the highlight of the Jewish calendar. I mean, you would have this meal with your friends and your family and you would gather as you celebrate the redemption of God. But this wasn't a normal Passover meal. Jesus um, veers from the traditional rituals of the Passover, rituals that the Jews have been practicing for over a thousand years. And he does something new. Jesus inaugurates a new covenant. And we just celebrated that together. Thank you, Dan Michaels, for leading us so beautifully in that, man. That was amazing. It was so moving. Thank you. And Jesus says that this covenant, this binding relationship will be inaugurated by the blood of the, by the blood of the lamb, not by the blood of the lamb, but by mine. Jesus stands before them and says, you know what this meal is really about? It's not about a thousand years ago. It's about me. I am the Passover lamb. My shed blood will get you mercy before God. And then Jesus stands up at the table and like Craig shared last week, Jesus wraps a towel around himself takes the role of a servant, and he proceeds to wash the disciples' feet. Peter protests and says, no, Lord, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus tells him that if he doesn't wash his feet, then Peter will have no part of him. And Peter says, as only Peter can do, well, wash me from head to toe then. I mean, that's our Peter. Half head and all heart. Uh, go big or go home kind of guy. Yeah, I so relate. And Peter's not done talking. <laughs> Jesus drops a bombshell and told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. You're all going to scatter. And Peter replies, even if they all fall away and scatter on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. 
But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. You see, Peter still doesn't get it. Peter's bravado and also the disciples who echo his lead is probably because of the lens they are still looking at Jesus through. They're still pinning their hopes that Jesus is going to lead a revolution, a bloody revolution and overthrow the enemy, the Roman government. And so they are ready to fight for him. In essence, Peter is saying, even if I have to fight and go to war with you I and die, I would never disown you because you are the Messiah and you will be victorious. That is the lens they are looking through. Even after the multiple times, Jesus has said that he will be crucified and die. And at the end of the meal, it says that they sang a hymn and went to the Mount of Olives. Now the hymn they would have sung was from the Hallel, Psalms 113 to 118. Now listen to some of the verses that Jesus, <laughs> he knows where he's going and his disciples would have sung. The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. It is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our sight. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I love this because Psalm 136 was normally the psalm he would sing at the end of Passover because it recounted all the things that God had done in the past by utilizing a consistent refrain. And it's just about in every line. And it says, his love endures forever. Because whenever you are in a time of suffering and a time of pain, what you wanna be reminded of over and over and over is God's love endures forever. And so they walk down to the Kidron Valley um, and go to a place at the foot of, um, at the Mount of Olives to a place called Gethsemane. Now Gethsemane was a private garden where Jesus, that Jesus knew well and where he and his disciples would go often to pray. And the name Gethsemane in Hebrew means oil pressed because olives were harvested there and oil was made. And when an olive was at its ripest, it was plucked and then crushed for its oil. And I think it's such an appropriate description of this moment. And it says in Mark 14, they went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Then he took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, and those closest to him for support. Now we've seen Jesus take these three before when he took them up the Mount of Transfiguration. And it is there that Peter, James, and John were see Jesus transfigured into glory where his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. And Moses and Elijah even appear before them talking with Jesus. But now in Gethsemane, they will see Jesus transfigured again. But this time not in his divine magnificent glory, no, but rather they will see his humanity on display as he is deeply sorrowful and troubled. 
And in Jesus' own words, to the point of death, Jesus' humanity is never more clear than in these verses. And he says to them, stay and watch. And it says this. And going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. Jesus opens up his heart to his disciples. He opens his heart up to God. And he opens his heart to the readers of Mark's gospel, which is us right now in this moment. And he lays bare his struggles, his agony, and his overwhelming sorrow. And Mark uses the strongest language he has available to describe Christ's agony. The word troubled here means to be overcome with horror. You know, apart from the cross, no greater agony has ever been experienced by any being who has ever lived in the world in human form. No man has ever suffered this way. And there's never been any sorrow or grief like the experience recorded in these verses. Jesus experienced the fullness of sorrow and agony in ways that we will never be able to understand, church. We can only feel our own pain. And we can only absorb so much pain that is outside of us. This experience of Jesus of sorrow and grief and suffering defies human comprehension, defines human understanding, and surpasses our ability to grasp. It's a real mind bender. And I even struggle to have like illustrations or whatever. I, I just thought, well, we'll let the text speak, but we'll get an inside look to what it is that he went through because this is truly sacred ground. This is the night when Jesus anticipates the drinking of the cup of divine wrath, which will be his in full on the cross. And his sorrow was so severe and the struggle is so massive that it came close to killing him. But it's important to note that in this garden moment, what Jesus is distressed about is not physical death, as heinous and torturous and horrific that will be, he is travailing that reality. But Jesus is facing something beyond physical torment, beyond physical death. You see, at the very heart of Jesus' prayer, he prays that this hour would pass, and then he prays that this cup would pass. The hour he calls a cup. What is that about? In Isaiah and Jeremiah and the Psalms, whenever someone is given a cup to drink, it is the cup of the wrath of God on human evil. Isaiah calls it the cup of staggering, the wrath of God against sin. You see, all his earthly life, because of Jesus' eternal connection to his Father and the Holy Spirit, whenever he turned to the Father, the Spirit flooded him with love. And what happened visibly and audibly like at Jesus' baptism when he came out of the water and immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And again at the transfiguration like we just talked about, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Not only did this happen visibly and audibly, it happened invisibly and inaudibly. Every time Jesus prayed, heaven would open up. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
He turns to the Father and instead of heaven opening up before him, all he can see before him is the horror of the cup, God's wrath. And the level of divine wrath is staggering because as one commentator put it, and I've never forgotten it, he said, on the cross, Jesus will embrace eternities of wrath, eternities of divine punishment for every sinner who's, whom, for whom he died. He took that sinner's eternal wrath, past, present, future. And on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin. Oh, let me say that again. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And when Jesus literally becomes sin for us, he will be alienated from his father. And that is agonizing for him because he has never been separated from his father before. You see, before time, before creation, I mean, Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created, or John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was with God in the beginning. And Jesus, as the Son and the Holy Spirit, which proceeds from the Father through the Son, were in relationship and in community before humans even came into the picture. And even when Jesus took human form, this community, this, this beautiful, holy family, this divine fellowship doesn't break. Over and over, the gospels say, we hear Jesus say, I only hear and do what the Father says. I and the Father are one. But here in Gethsemane, Jesus began to experience what would happen when he became separated from the Father on the cross. And he began to experience just a mere taste of that, and he staggers. And it terrifies him. And so he prays to God. And how appropriate on this day. Abba, Father. Church, there's nowhere in any Jewish Palestinian literature before that anybody has ever called God Abba. Nobody called him that. It would have been offensive to a Jew to use a name like that. Abba means daddy. I mean, to use such a colloquial and household name to address a holy God was unthinkable. And yet here we get a window into this intimate moment where Jesus goes to his father and he says, Dada, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be separate from you. So if there's any way to not do it this way, I'm up for that. But then he says incredibly, not my will, but yours be done. And he submits his will to his father. And parents, fathers, wouldn't we do everything in our power to help our child or loved one if they were pleading to us like that? An incredible torment and pain. And I think even the most stoic of fathers would probably relent. Our parental instinct would kick in and we would move heaven and earth to help our child. You see, the lengths that God is going to to show us the heinousness of sin shows just how deep the stain goes. Jesus said, if there's any way for this cup to pass, church, there wasn't any other way. Atonement for sin, the payment for sin, required the brutal death of the Holy One. Away with the idea that there was another way. Notice God doesn't 
say, actually, son, there are many ways to me, so you can opt out if you want. No. <laughs> Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the only way. Amen. And you see in that the justice of God. And we want a God of justice and wrath when we see atrocities in our world like what we saw in Christchurch. We demand it. But when we realize that we're sinners too, we are terrified of a God of justice and wrath. God hates sin and God hates what humanity has done to each other. God's not gonna let it go unpunished. He will not blow it off and say she'll be right. God will punish evil. And yes, yet, you don't just see the justice of God, but you see the love of God. The wrath of God could be poured out on all of us and we deserve it. And yes, God is so loving that he sends his son to be a substitutionary sacrifice for us. In other words, Jesus took our place. Jesus voluntarily gave up intimacy with his father so we could have intimacy with the father. The Abba father kind of intimacy. He experienced being forsaken so we never would. Galatians 4 says, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out Abba, Father, because we are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And incredibly, in the midst of his travailing in prayer, we see Jesus go to Peter, James, and John for comfort, perhaps, or concern. And he goes to check on them and finds them asleep. The disciples just can't stay awake. And Jesus says, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not watch even one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing. Oh, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. To me, that sounds familiar. This echoes back to Matthew 6, where the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, because we see you doing it a lot. Teach us to pray. And Jesus gives them a model that we call now the Lord's Prayer. And if you know it, say it with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus is saying to the disciples, wake up boys and pray with me like I taught you, so you will not be led into temptation. Why? Because all hell is about to break loose. You're about to face a difficult moment, so I want you to start praying so you won't enter into that temptation. In Luke's gospel in chapter 22, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you all like wheat, but I'm praying for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. 
And when you have turned back, encourage your brothers. Jesus knows what's coming and he knows what's coming for Peter. And he is encouraging Peter to wake up and be alert, to watch and to pray. So when those thoughts of fear and doubt and anxiety and self-preservation kick in, I want you to prepare yourself through prayer so you will be able to resist acting on those impulses because the moment is coming. And in the garden, Jesus is doing and modeling exactly what he is telling them to do. And it says in the next verse, once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. Jesus is wrestling this thing through with the Father. It's here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus bore his cross privately before his Father. He felt the full weight of what was to come. And scripture tells us that he knew all things. Galgotha is the place where Jesus will experience the shame of nakedness of body. But here in Gethsemane, he experienced the nakedness of soul, the struggle with his will. And again, he went away and he prayed saying the same words. And again, he came back and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy, very heavy. And they did not know what to say to him. I mean, what do you say? (laughs) What do you say? Jesus has asked his closest friends to stay and pray so they won't enter into temptation and they just can't do it. They sleep while the most significant moment in history unfolds in front of them, totally and utterly unaware of the significance of what is happening, unfaithful to the one who's been nothing but faithful to them. You know, as I read these passages, it's easy to deceive myself and think, I would have stayed and prayed, stayed awake with you, Jesus. I would have watched and prayed, but can I confess something? Every time I came to study these passages, no joke, sleep seemed to overwhelm me like never before. I got so tired. I mean, there was a battle going on for my attention, honestly, for the phone, for everything that my phone would go off and phone calls and every distraction unmanageable, even from my dog. (laughs) And I was like, what is going on? So I had to get offline and really, really try and focus. So I get that the spirit is willing, but man, oh man, the flesh is so weak. My flesh is so weak. In John's gospel, it says that the disciples slept for sorrow. It may be hard for us to imagine this whole account because we know the end of the story. We know Sundays are coming, but they don't. They only know this moment. They're seeing their hero, their Messiah, who they've pinned all their hopes on, who they have seen calm storms and nature obeys. They've seen Jesus heal the sick, cast demons out, open the eyes of the blind, turn water into wine and feed 5,000 people with a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread. They've seen him defy gravity and walk on water and raise the dead back to life again. But now they are seeing their Messiah vulnerable and overwhelmed with sorrow. And how do they respond? They sleep on. Can I ask you gently, how do you drown your sorrows? Anyone here take to their bed when they are sad? I've got a kid like that. Sometimes it's good and right that we just go to sleep, get some rest, (laughs) sleep it off. 
when we are sad and overwhelmed. Absolutely, absolutely. But can I also encourage you and I, and I've been so convicted about this, that in our moments of deep despair, that our first port of call, the thing that we want to do probably the least is to pray. We're so vulnerable to temptation and the schemes of the enemy when we are heartbroken or in deep pain. Talk to your father in heaven about it because that's what prayer is. It's talking to him. Talk, cry, groan, do whatever you have to do, but talk to him. Cry out to God that he would awaken your spirit, open your eyes to see and ears to hear his voice and a heart to feel his love. And returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. The hour he asked to pass is now here and Jesus doesn't run from it. He says, look, the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And we will look at that next week. Now, Jesus is like resolute and walking straight towards the cross. What happened? Is Jesus now resigned to his fate or has something shifted in Luke's gospel, Luke says something so interesting. I found it just so fascinating. He says that an angel came from heaven and strengthened Jesus. Imagine being that angel given that assignment. I mean, what do you say? What do you say, if anything? How did the angel strengthen him? Did he give him a John Piper book on suffering? Some worship CDs? I don't know. But apparently, Gethsemane is right next to the temple in Jerusalem. That you can see it from the garden. The temple where the Holy of Holies dwelt, where the priests would go once a year to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. And Jesus would have known that in that temple, there was a veil that separated us and kept us from entering into the presence of God. And I love how one commentator put it that he wondered if the angel came to Jesus and in Jesus's moment of his greatest torment, that the angel didn't lift the chin of Jesus and point to the temple and say, Jesus, your people need forgiveness. Your people need reconciliation with their God. So Jesus, get up and go to that cross and you tear that veil in two. Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy set before him, he entered the cross, scorning its shame. He went to the cross with joy. And what was the joy set before him? Hear this church. It's you. It's me. It's us. Oh, what a savior. And all we can do is stand amazed. And for Peter, as he's rubbing the sleep out of his eyes, the next few hours are not going to be his finest or for any of the disciples for that matter. They will all run and abandon Jesus. And yet Jesus, knowing full well what, was, what they would do, John's gospel says that he loved them to the end. He goes to the cross utterly alone, loving them 
with joy. Oh, church, our God is so faithful even when we are not. He's faithful to us in our mountaintop experiences, and he's ever close to us in our heartache and failure. Now, Darren's going to come out, and he's going to sing a song that the BBC youth have been singing, and we've been singing on Sunday nights. And I just find the song so moving, the lyric. And so my prayer is that this morning you would let it just settle on you. That our God is faithful in the highlands and he's faithful in the lowlands with you. He's faithful when you are having a glorious moment and you see him transfigured. And also he's with you in the absolute heartache of your life. And may it just settle on you and may you hear his voice and may you let him minister to you with his love. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Darren. Walk the out the other side. 
valley of death I sing through the shadows A song of a sin Wherever I walk through Wherever I am Your name can move mountains Wherever I stand And if ever I walk through The valley of death I sing through the shadows My song of a sin Song of sin. I'll sing through the shadows my song of sin. My song of sin. And from the greatest of all valleys come the Pastures we call grace, a mighty river flowing upwards from a deep but empty grave. Oh, I will praise you on the mountain, and I will praise you when the mountains in my you're the summit where my feet are So I will praise you in the valleys of the same No less God within the shadows No less faithful when the light leads me astray You're the manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we could be called the children of God and yet while we were still sinners Christ died for us what an amazing reality amen that you are so loved you're so loved I don't mean for this message to be heavy it's just where we are in the scripture but I would encourage you that whatever it is that you're facing, whether it's heartache, your present heartache, one of the best things you can do and what can make all the difference is to let us pray for you. We've got an amazing prayer team that would love to partner with you in that. Amen? Pray for each other. But today, may the joy of what Jesus did for us, may that hit you in a fresh way. May you go out and enjoy the sunshine and be ever aware. Ask God to wake you up to his voice this morning. Amen. And in this day, and that we celebrate God, our Father. So stay, have some sausages, hot chocolate in the cafe, whatever it is, but celebrate together. Amen. Father, we really have no idea <laughs> all that's been done for us. But God, I pray that, that, that we would be confronted with it and that it would stir and move us and it would um, stir in us gratefulness and awe because that's our only response. 
We stand amazed in your presence. We love you. In Jesus' precious name, amen, amen.